Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is uh, someone who's become a pretty good friend pretty quickly. I would say, Seth. I think we really, I think you and I, I really get on. I'm, I'm glad that you think so, because otherwise I would have felt so alone. I, I could see us in a uh, timeshare situation in, uh, <laughs> down in Boca. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> where where our people tend to go yeah. at some point in life. Exactly. And uh, Seth Matlins is the EVP of Cultural Strategy and Insights at 160 over 90, part of the Endeavor family. And we're thrilled to have you here, Seth. Uh, and I want to start by going back a little bit. There are certain names that are seminal in our industry, but who are not quite lost in history, but probably not as well remembered or as prominent as they should be. And I'd love to start by asking you about Donald Dell, and pro and pro serve yeah yeah um well donald is absolutely a legend for the listeners who don't know um donald donald is one of the pioneers of sports marketing um there was mark mccormick and img and donald dell and pro serve and they they both started the businesses at about the same time in in um i believe it was mid to late 60s mark started img which of course is now a part of the Endeavor Network, um, really working with Arnold Palmer, and they were very golf focused. Donald, Donald started ProServe uh, around Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, and as IMG was to golf, ProServe was to tennis, um, and then ProServe probably, you know, really rose to um, some fame. No pun intended for those who get the reference uh, on the back of representing Michael Jordan and David Falk's practice inside the business. I, um, when I began my career, uh, I was uh, my first job was a special events coordinator for Evian. I was the third person in the marketing department when that brand was launched in the United States, and I was in charge of sponsorships. Um, we had a big tennis program. Uh, you can. You know, as recently as I think uh, last week, two weeks ago, I can't remember, you could see our coolers on the court at the US Open, a, a deal that, that I first did. Um, and ProServe was our agency. They handled all of our tennis sponsorships. And then after I'd been at Avion in a variety of roles, leaving um, after having been in brand management and introducing a new, a new French water brand in the United States, I went to work for ProServe. The agency hired me. Um, and I worked for a guy named Jerry Solomon at the time. Uh, I was actually VP of Olympic sports, um, but Donald was, you know, running the business. Donald uh, uh, was at my wedding. Um, he is a legend uh, and he's still super active. In fact, shortly after um, The Last Dance had its first run on ESPN, Donald reached out to uh, the, the ProServe alumni network. Uh, there was a fleeting glimpse of Donald's back um, in the last dance, and and he used it. Uh, I'm happy to say, as an occasion uh, to reach out and reconnect. And he and I traded uh, 
traded some texts, uh, but yeah, absolute legend and, and really one of the seminal forces in shaping the sports marketing landscape as we know it today. And those two firms between them, IMG and ProServe, were so dominant and they really gave birth in a lot of ways to the modern day business of sports marketing. A hundred percent, a hundred percent as, as because, because they started and even their alumni, I mean, it was, you know, two ex pro serve guys who started what was advantage and that became Octagon. Um, they invented the practice. They took, they took talent, um, athletes, uh, and, and found new ways of, um, uh, generating revenue for them, monetizing it and using that monetization to help brands sell more of their widgets and wares. Um, and so much of the company I'm now a part of, uh, including, you know, media rights and media representation, all of television production um, was, was, you know, is, is the offspring of what those two companies and in particular, those two guys did. Yeah. Amazing run. And, you had a run at, uh, I want to go back to Rock the Vote uh, a little bit later. I know you spent some time at CAA and some time uh, as global CMO at Live Nation. Your tenure there sort of coincided with what were the early days of digital. Yeah. Reflecting back on that time now, I mean, so much of what you do, you know, the core of it is around experience. Yep. Now we're in this bizarre period where our experience is limited to what we can do on the screen that you and I are talking to each other right now. When you were back then in those early days of, of digital, did you ever think it would become as big as it has? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think it was it was clear where the world was going. So so I joined CAA to start the marketing group in 2000. I left at the end of 2008 and uh, the beginning of 2009, I became global CMO at Live Nation. So a few things were happening concurrently, right? You know, we were in the midst of a global recession for the first time in, you know, sometime. We were, uh, I started three days after the intent to merge with Ticketmaster was announced. Um, everything was in flux, globally, nationally, corporately. What, what was clear, and I was certainly at the time no, no digital savant, um, was that, yeah, everything was changing. Michael Rapino, who is, you know, the brilliant guy who, who has really built and runs that, that company, well, He's the brilliant guy who has built it, and he's the brilliant guy who runs it. Two separate thoughts. Um, had had uh, um, begun to build LiveNation.com as its own ticketing website, right? And it was, you know, competitor to Ticketmaster for rights, for the consumer's attention, for the consumer's dollar, um, etc. And I, I think, in many ways, it probably hastened the merger with Irving. Um, but what became clear at that time was that we were witnessing the, the beginnings of, and I'm sorry for using kind of a trite marketing word, massification, the beginnings of the massification of digital, the beginnings of the massification of social in particular. And I remember that, you know, when I started to pay attention to it, we had five different Facebook logins and no real Twitter strategy at all. Nobody knew what to do with Twitter. Nobody knew what to do with Facebook. It was all just so nascent. Um, I was, you know, 
I was prescient enough, or at least enough a master of the obvious, to kind of have some sense of where it was going. And, and it was under my watch that we hired, and I hired our first, um, our first uh, social uh, media managers that we began to coordinate. Um, how we marketed it, how we marketed and what we marketed across Twitter, because Live Nation, I don't want to speak for it today because I, I, I'm less familiar, but it was still very much a local business, right? Concerts are a local business run by local promoters, many of whom were inside the company, but it was locally driven. Um, and, and finding a way to coordinate, you know, how, how we um, made people aware of the fact that there were still tickets available, when we made them aware, how it all kind of, ca uh, um, the cadence of communication was, um, was all you know, brand new then. I do remember uh, it was probably the worst meeting of my career. Uh, Michael had tasked me um, with getting us to a million followers on uh, Facebook in, I don't know, it was, not a ton of time. <laughs> we had like seven. Um, and, you know, it was easy to buy followers in that day, right? Most brands were doing it. They were just buying followers and getting to a million, you know, because they spent two or 300,000. That wasn't how we were going to do things. And I remember, you know, the clock ran out on my getting to a million night on our getting to a million. And I think, you know, we were at like 140,000. Uh, that was, that was a difficult meeting because I was also pretending I, had any clue how to do it. And I had absolutely no clue how to do it. And I am confident that was apparent to Michael at the time. You know, I remember when we started Advertising Week in 2004, almost none of the subjects that we're talking about today, other than things that are timeless, like storytelling and, you know, the craft part of our industry, almost none of the subjects were subjects at all. And as you reflect back to your early days at ProServe and then CAA and, and Live Nation, relative to what you're doing now, it's almost a completely different skill set. Well, yes, yes and no, right? You don't have, you don't have to agree with me. You can disagree. No, no, no. It's, it's yes and no. And, and it's something I say a lot, which is the how we do it has changed. That's the new skill set for sure. But the fundamentals are exactly the same. The fundamental job of marketing is to capture attentions and influence attitudes and behaviors. The fundamental craft of storytelling hasn't changed. It's just the ways we tell those stories, where we tell those stories, the, uh, how and when and where we're able to uh, capture attentions um, has changed. Obviously, performance marketing uh, was not something that existed uh, back then. But but I do tend to think, um, uh, uh, and maybe this is just a reflection on the fact that I'm, I'm not able to grasp complicated uh, uh, um things is the, the task is to keep it simple. We're still in the business of persuading and influencing and motivating. And more often than not, that is, you know, uh, some balance between the rational and the emotional, the functional and the emotional, um, the how, the how and the where change, but the what is, is still the same. Yeah, no, it's, and it still comes down to connecting and engaging with people. You know, that, that hasn't changed. So you talked about Donald Dell a little bit, but looking back at that early part of your career, who were some of the great minds that really influenced you? Uh, you know, look, 
I mentioned in passing a moment ago that, you know, my first job was as the third person in the marketing department at Evian, um, which was probably, you know, made me the, you know, 30th person in the company in the United States. And this was, this was late eighties. Nobody knew, um, why they should be drinking bottled water, let alone one with a name they couldn't pronounce in a pink and blue bottle at a ridiculously high price. Um, no question, I learned so much then. Um, and in particular, you know, there, there were a couple of people, David Daniel, who uh, was the CEO of Avion at the time, um, had come from uh, PepsiCo and actually his, his father, as I recall, was the legendary Ron Daniel from McKinsey. I mean, David was just like freaking brilliant. Um, and he taught me so much as did just the entire experience of selling the world's most generic substance at a super premium price in a bottle that nobody really could figure out why they needed. Um, because if you go back to that moment in time, tap water was, everybody was drinking tap. Uh, for the most part, nobody was drinking bottled water out of anything other than a jug or, or a cooler. Um, so it was David and our agency at the time uh, was TBWA before the merger with, with Shiat and, you know, folks like Bill Tragos, who is the T in TBWA, you know, also taught me uh, more than a few lessons, but, but I'll share that, you know, the great experience of having been at that brand, which was at the time the fastest growing brand and the fastest growing category in the supermarket was that, um, as David said to me, you know, there was nothing we could do to screw it up. And so we got to do a lot of things. And even if we screwed up, it was okay. The business didn't suffer, right? We just kept making more money. Um, and, and, you know, as, um, as is often the case, uh, you learn the most from what you screw up the best. And, and I, I got the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And you mentioned some other names, Rapino, and I actually worked for Live Nation when it was SFX, when, yeah, Siller, we, when, when Sillerman first put the thing together. Well, which, which going back to your question about ProServe, right? ProServe was a part of SFX. Um, and, and I left the company probably about six or eight months. It could be a year, but six or eight months is in my head after Sillerman had bought it from Donald. And um, it was, in fact, when I told, when I told, it was a guy named Bill Allard, who was kind of, you know, the day-to-day -day president of the company at the time, when I told him that I was leaving, I was, I was moving out west to run Rock the Vote, he said, look, we really don't want you to go. And, you know, there's some news that hasn't become public yet, but I'm going to share it with you, hoping it compels you to stay. And that was that Sillerman had, had also bought, um, David Falk's company had bought Fame. Um, thus the reference I made early on, um, and, you know, was going to package all of this, he had, you know, under marquee and which later became SFX. Uh, but the thought of, uh, being able to help change the world was, uh, too compelling to, uh, to stay. You also were very early in the game working in marketing when you did about 20 years ago at CAA. And sort of the birth of the whole Hollywood, Madison Avenue, I won't call it rivalry, but sort of mutual aspirations where Hollywood really wanted to be in the Madison Avenue business and aspirationally Madison Avenue really wanted to be in the Hollywood business. Um, what were your recollections from that time? And did you see yourself as taking on the established Madison Avenue or was it just a new way forward, a new way to do business? Um, 
definitely did not view ourselves as taking them on, though that evolved. So, of course, that whole relationship was really, really pioneered by Michael Ovitz at CAA. Michael wasn't at CAA uh, when I got there in 2000, but in 1995, you know, with Sergio Zeman, the CMO of the Coca-Cola company at the time, he pioneered, you know, this notion that uh, going back to what we talked about, the fundamentals of storytelling, that stories could best be told by by storytellers, real storytellers. Uh, I don't mean real storytellers, but storytellers who, who were entertaining, you know, uh, the tens of millions, the filmmakers, the television makers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it was really pioneered by Michael. But in 2000, I had left Rock the Vote and was playing around with a few things. Um, and a couple of things happened uh, uh, concurrently. One, there was a change at the Coca-Cola company um, at the top and a guy named Doug Daft became you know, global chief executive. And uh, he had been running the Co uh, Coke's business in Japan at the time, you know, wildly successfully. And he brought over his global CMO, a guy by the name of Steve Jones, who had worked with him in Japan. Steve and Doug were looking to send signals um, to the world and to the company both um, that things were going to be different, that they were going to market differently, that they were going to look at how to build brands and sell, sell products through a different lens. And a guy who's you know, also a bit of a legend unto himself, John Dooner, who was at the time the chairman of McMahon, McCann, he became the chairman of, maybe he was at IPG at the time. I can't remember. He certainly became the, the CEO of IPG introduced Doug and Steve um, to CAA, to the guys who were running it, uh, who are running it, Richard Lovett uh, and Brian Lord in particular. Um, and they began a courtship and the courtship continued and it was originally a, you know, a relatively short-term deal. And you know, the folks at CAA needed somebody who, who knew how to be what, what we refer to here at 160, be a brand agent, represent the best interests of a brand through a different lens. Um, kind of leaning into the Hollywood equity. Uh, and um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, the one that they tapped to come in and figure that out. And it, it went pretty well. Looking at the course of events, and, and I understood your uh, not intentional dig at Madison Avenue creatives in the art of storytelling. Do you think that that instinct way back when was right? It sure seems like it was. Um, and that the opportunities for the Hollywood talent agencies to work with brands that way back when that Ovitz had the right instinct, you know, oh, think, tw 25 years ago. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question Michael did. And I think you're seeing more and more of that. Ryan Reynolds, who is, uh, you know, a WME client has has, you know, really taken it to a high art. Um, and you're seeing more and more um, in front of camera talent want more and more. Uh, input into the nature of the stories they tell. You're seeing Jonah Hill do it with Adidas. You're seeing Pharrell do it. You're seeing uh, Michael B. Jordan do it for Lipton, on and on and on. Um, but I think that what, you know, what we see, going back to your first question about, you know, digital in 0809, is that the landscape is so, is so fragmented um, and continuing to fragment that there is room for the stories of you know, my my four, my kids are storytellers. Not particularly good. I hope you guys aren't listening. Um, but they're they're getting better. Um, and you know, there's room for all of us. But yeah, I do think that you will see um, more and more stories being at scale, being told by um, 
people that are perhaps better known for other creative, um, other aspects of creativity. And that you you will see, um, you know, I think it was like in 01 when Scott Donatin was, you know, uh, at, at age and he coined the Madison and Vine phrase um, and put on those Madison and Vine uh, conversations. I, uh, you know, the phrase seems to have dropped from the current vernacular as phrases do over time, but, but Scott's instincts were on point and I think will only, I know, will only continue to see more of that. Quite frankly, I'm surprised uh, in the 20 years I've been doing this that we aren't seeing more of it yet. Um, and I will assume some of the responsibility for that failure. Well, there's a lot of success, a lot of success too. I used to go to those conferences NH used to do with Scott and yep. Joan and that whole gang. Uh, so let's talk about your journey. You're about four years in now as yep. part of the WME family. How'd, how'd you get there? So I left Live Nation to start my own thing. I had an idea, actually it was an idea that I was working on quietly when I was still at CAA, um, that there was a very complicated problem in the world and I had what I thought was a simple solution. Turns out I was wildly wrong just to get to the punchline. Um, the problem, you know, I, I, like many fathers, like many parents, I became a bit of a cliche. And while I've learned a lot since then, I, I began to, for the first time really see, look, I'm very privileged. You know, I'm white, I'm straight. Um, I've grown up in New York City and made a career in and around Hollywood for almost all of it. Um, you know, I have been not, I have not been challenged um, systemically and structurally. Uh, but when my daughter was about three or four and my son was a year younger, like a lot of parents, I began to look at the world differently. And I began in particular to look at the world through my daughter's eyes. Now, worth noting is that my kids are both black. Uh, their mother is white like me, they were adopted. And I became acutely aware as people of privilege often do, perhaps not often enough, when made aware of the absence of privilege of others, that things are pretty effed up out there. Um, and in particular, I began to worry for my daughter because I knew a lot of brilliant, kind, curious, wildly successful women, a lot of whom struggled with happiness, which isn't unique to women, it's unique to the human condition. But I wanted to create a better world for women and girls. I wanted to create a better world for my daughter. And so I set out, I promise this preamble will come to a close. I set out to, to um, build the world's most meaningful women's brand. Um, because I saw a lot of large brands out there, but I didn't see any particularly meaningful brands out there. Um, now, obviously I, I failed rather spectacularly, um, uh, learning, learning many, many lessons and losing many, many dollars along, along the way. Um, but what that crystallized for me was um, the, the import of the double bottom line, the important responsibility that businesses have to making the world a better place. Now, to be clear, I'd been in the cause marketing space since day one at Avion. But the cause marketing space had evolved dramatically and it has certainly been accepted. So I joined October roughly 15th of 2016 to start the purpose-driven practice at Endeavor. That practice we call branded impact because it's not a philanthropic practice. 
It's a practice that believes that the narrative that suggests you have to choose between profit and purpose is a false narrative. And that in today's world, in the cultural context in which we as marketers operate, nothing drives profit more um, efficiently and effectively than purpose authentically well activated. So my business, my entrepreneurial dreams had come crashing down. Uh, and I learned that uh, there's a very big difference between being an entrepreneur like you are and an entrepreneurial, which I am, because I learned I am not an entrepreneur. And I came, um, basically I pitched um, starting this practice to, um, to a variety of people in and around town. And, and because what I saw was the change coming. Um, that it's not CSR, it's marketing. And I saw that coming. I'd been advocating it for a long time. The cliche of doing well by doing good, you know, I always believed in it. It was what I wanted to do out of college even. You know, the Patagonias, the Ben and Jerry's, the body shops, the esprits of the world, the pioneers of this space who proved, proved incontrovertibly how this works. I knew that everybody was going to catch up. So I, I uh, pitched uh, to a few, a few people and um, uh, Ari and Mark and some folks there, um, I'm not sure they all entirely believed me, but they believed it enough to give me a shot to begin to build the practice. Um, and, you know, one could not, I used to describe it when I first got here, in fact, going again back to your question, as what digital was like in 09. Right, the beginning of the massification of this idea. Unilever had, you know, Paul Pullman and Keith Weed were doing their thing. So important, you know, I, I, I've described their efforts as maybe the most important. Walmart had proven what a business can do for sustainability and environmental practices. Um, they don't get enough credit for that, by the way. Um, little could I have seen, of course, the acceleration in consumer expectations and the around the responsibility and obligation of brands, companies to be active participants in making the world a better place that was first caused by um, the 2016 election uh, and, and the guy who, who is in office now. Um, and then, you know, again, catalyzed and accelerated by uh, quarantine and, and Corona. And then uh, once again, um, on the day that Breonna Taylor's murderers have not quite been brought to justice by the BLM protest that followed George Floyd's murder on May 25th. Amazing, great story. And somewhere along the line, 160 over 90. Yeah, so, so when I joined, I was, look, 160 over 90 is, is what, you know, we've, the business has, the, the agency, let's take a second on the agency. So what 160 over 90 is, um, is we're a full service creative shop, uh, ideas driven like every marketing services agency, but we've been built originally through acquisition. When WME bought IMG, the IMG consulting business came over. Um, they also bought uh, uh, experiential agencies like Fusion and IMG Live, uh, PR and comms agencies like Catalyst and Clifford French. We were built largely by acquisition, and then a few organic growth things like our purpose-driven practice, our entertainment marketing practice. Um, we had bought a digital shop. I think it was actually the first acquisition called Red in Santa Monica 10 years earlier. What 160 does is it unites all of those individual parts of the marketing mix, all of those service areas and all of that expertise. And we're, you know, 600 people, um, give or take, um, 
around the globe who are expert in all of those areas, but also who are, you know, we are advantaged. Our advantage as an agency is that we are a part of the Endeavor Network. We are the most culturally connected agency in the world because of the being an integrated part of this cultural behemoth. There is no part of the cultural landscape that we don't have some incremental access insight uh, uh, into, um, and that you know gives our clients, uh, sorry, this is becoming a pitch, which I didn't mean <laughs> to, the advantage of being able to see around the cultural corner and to see where their audience's attentions uh, are gonna be next. And, and not that I want you to give us a case study, but is there a particular piece of work that has your fingerprints on it the last four years that you can say, hey, the original vision we had here, this is kind of working. A thousand percent. And I'm, I'm going to, it, it really goes back to, um, it goes back to what I started to do when I left Live Nation. Um, so I had a women's, uh, I had a women's website and, and clothing line, as it turns out. Um, the clothing line is kind of what killed the business, frankly. Um, and, and we were creating a safe space for women um, to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, whatever the, was hating on their happiness, creating their happiness, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations. Um, in 2011, there was a story out of the UK about uh, an, a British MP, Joanne Swinson, Joe Swinson, who'd taken down two billboards in London. There were Lancome billboards. One had Julia Roberts on it. The other had uh, Christy Turlington. She took them down because they were so Photoshopped, she said, they provided, and I'm pretty close to quoting, a false and unrealistic expectation about what women should and could look like. And I knew, you know, body image was, you know, a big part of the conversation back in 2010. Uh, it was hating on a lot of women's happiness, you know, really affecting the physical and mental, uh, physical, mental and emotional health of women for generations. Um, and so I knew our community would be interested in it. And I was going to, I just literally was posting it as a kind of FYI, but as I was posting it, I kind of wondered who was looking out for my daughter, my son, the way uh, here in the US, the way Joe Swinson was there. Longer story shorter, um, I found out nobody was, no, no politicians were. So, you know, I, I began a crusade, I guess, uh, that started with an article in Huffington Post um, that, that posited, you know, should we be legislating, should we be adding disclosures to Photoshopped ads and creative? Right. So that when people looked at it, they knew what was real and they knew um, uh, what wasn't um, because it was that false perception that led to false expectations that led to unhappiness and not just unhappiness, real health consequences. Longer story shorter, still that article with the support of a lot of people, in particular in the eating disorders community, because um, at the far end of the continuum of damages to the human being um, from these images are um, eating disorders, which have the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. And so that community really uh, embraced what I had set out to do. And we had a bill in Congress uh, introduced in 2014 as the Truth in Advertising Act uh, that compelled or sought to compel the FTC to um, bring the stakeholders in the industry together, the advertising agencies and the advertisers 
to talk about what we could do. We were we, strategically, we were not prescriptive. We wanted everybody to come together because we figured nobody's setting out to hurt anyone, but we're hurting people nonetheless. Interestingly, as a side note, the FTC hasn't changed the policies and regulations regarding um, uh, what constitutes unfair uh, uh, advertising since 1979. Now, you may remember, because you've been around long like I, there was no internet in 1979. There was no Instagram. We didn't have phones. Um, the world's changed a little bit, as, as you suggested in the very beginning. So, you know, they've got some work to do. Um, but anyway, I never had any illusions that the bill would become a law, especially with the Republican Congress. And there was a moment, and it was probably about the same moment that I was pitching this idea to, to uh, um, the folks at Endeavor, WMEIMG at the time, um, that I was like, you know, if I had this to do over again, I would do it as a marketing campaign. Um, I, would, I would have gone to Dove, right? Um, fast forward, the first call I made when I got to uh, this company was I cold called Norman DeGreve at CVS. Norm is the CMO at CVS, because what they had done in 2014 when they removed tobacco and tobacco related products from their store was just, you know, it's OG baller, like a $2 billion hit. It was, it was walk in the walk, like such an impressive move. Um, and I knew that as I was building this practice, as we were building this practice, um, that we wanted to be in business with somebody like that somebody who had courage um, and conviction both. So Norm and I began talking and some, some time later, probably a year later, um, there was a challenge that you know, he came to us with, which was, hey, our, our beauty aisle is commoditized. We're selling the same thing as other mass and drug retailers, right? Same products, what, what do we do? And what became clear to us strategically was that if we couldn't differentiate based on what they sold, maybe we could differentiate based on how they sold it. And so that became what is now the CVS beauty mark. And um, in 2018, I think, years run together, CVS, whose, whose purpose is to help people on their path to better health, announced the CVS Beauty Mark program, which is the outgrowth of the article I wrote in Huffington Post, the legislation we had, and they are changing, you know, helping to change the face of beauty globally. So the, the CVS Beauty Mark program does two things fundamentally, though it perhaps has evolved beyond this, um, which is at least initially it was a commitment by them not to Photoshop, materially change any of the people in their creative. And then they said to the major beauty brands um, selling in their stores, when you send us something, you, got, you, you can continue to Photoshop it, but we will mark it as such. But if you don't materially Photoshop it, it will carry another mark, which is the CVS beauty mark saying beauty unaltered. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know that any of us would have um, imagined the initial reception of uh, the beauty brands, but uh, nor do I know what the numbers are today, but um, it's been, you know, uh, I read recently, it continues to be of, of value to their business results and to their brand. And yeah, that one's got uh, an, uh, uh, 160s fingerprints all over it. 
I want to go back to something we spoke about earlier and that you spent some time leading Rock the Boat. Yeah. Here we are 20 years later. With that experience at the forefront, what's your take on the efforts now, some led by athletes like LeBron, to get the vote out? And is it going to be effective? Um, Is that window of opportunity to get young people engaged in the electoral process? Is that window still open? Well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I am, I, I'm terrified as I think a lot of us are. Um, I am as a human, as a father, as a citizen, global citizen, so grateful to everybody. And there are so many who are standing up and raising their hand and raising their voices and using their platforms, um, to, to drive this. Um, look, the percentages, um, you know, the percentages of youth that turn out of the younger, you know, uh, end of the electoral spectrum, they're not spectacular, except in moments. They were spectacular in 08, right? It really catalyzed uh, amongst others, um, Obama's victory. Uh, They can be spectacular again. Um, that, That anyone needs to be incrementally compelled to vote in this moment is, is of course, stunning to those who pay attention, um, that, that somehow uh, our world has made being um, anti-racist and anti-hate and pro-equity, equality, and justice um, political is, is, I think, stunning to, to everyone. But um, here's hoping it's not too late. Here's hoping um, that those who register turn out. Here's hoping that LeBron's voice is stronger than Vladimir Putin's. Um, Here's hoping that uh, uh, we get back on track. I'll share that on Friday, you know, I was so sad when when I saw the news about RBG. I wasn't surprised any more than anyone was, but I was so sad. But my heart literally broke like it ached. When I read McConnell's, you know, remarks, not because he surprised me either, but because I just, I'm, I'm just, you know, saddened by um, what we as a country have become and, and might become still. Our, our team doesn't fight dirty very well. No, we don't. And the other team fights dirty really well. Yep. And, 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 you know, uh, I remember walking out, it's 2004, uh, Howard Dean wasn't yet, yet the phenomenon he became a few months later. And there was a gathering in Hollywood at the, at the Hilton, right down the street from old CAA of, you know, a bunch of, a, a lot of Hollywood personalities, all of whom had different candidates and the primary was still primarying. And I remember walking out with a friend of mine before it was over and I, I just turned to her and I said, we're screwed. We can't we can't market our way out of a paper bag as a party. We will fight with the we eat our own progressives eat their own where it seems conservatives and I apologize to anybody who's of a different political ideology listening. This is just my point of view. No hate, no shade. Conservatives at a certain point, they just get on board. Look at Lindsey Graham. Donald Trump is a disaster. Don, we will, whatever happens to us, we will deserve. Now he's, you know, now he's, um, 
carrying a lot of water for him. So uh, yes, we don't fight dirty. Uh, we don't fight fire with fire and we're not very good marketers by and large as a party. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. We'll see what happens. But um, I know and you also speak to people from all over the all over the planet. And, you know, the consistent thing that I get asked and it's almost the same exact question, whether I'm on with people in Nigeria or Japan or Mexico or UK, wherever it might be, it's what the fuck happened in your country? And I, I don't know what to say. Uh, I, it, because it defies description. I used to, <clears throat> people would ask me years ago who my favorite brands were, what my favorite brands were. And I would say Santa Claus, because, you know, what what other example do you have of, of parents lining up sometimes for hours to place their children in the lap of a strange man simply because he's wearing this costume? And then I would say America, because despite how many times we we were, acted incompatibly with our values, our values still transcended, right? Our, we still stood for something, even when our behaviors suggested perhaps we were being less than authentic. That is no longer the case. You know, we, we no longer stand for that. We have de, de, devalued those values. Um, and, you know, I wrote about this after the election. I, I really do believe I, I wish I could figure out how to make it pragmatic, but I really do believe it's time for these United States to consciously uncouple because um, I, I'll just share that, you know, I, I don't know what I have in common besides our humanity, which I don't say dismissively, with somebody who would have voted for Roy Moore uh, in uh, Arkansas. And I don't want my dollars and their dollars to be competitive. You, you go your way, we'll go ours. I don't, I don't think, I really don't, it saddens me. I don't think the union can hold. Yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. You know, I, I, I like to think that there's still more that unites us than divides us, but I'm afraid that that is now naive. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm amazed not just by the people who seem to go to these rallies who appear to be, for the most part, just to the eye, um, so we're ju we are judging a book by the cover here, is undereducated. But I marvel at people who are, you know, live in my neighborhood where I live in my town in Port Washington, who are, you know, upper middle class, you know, white suburban, who are on that team. And I'm like, what did you say? And yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. Look, I mean, I, I, obviously, I share the same the same confusion um, as do they about us, right? And that's what I remind myself of. They, they, you know, a lot of these people were as as passionately anti Obama as um, we find ourselves now about the current occupant. Um, you know, it it is in this environment, you know, where people where we are more polarized, pessimistic. Um, uh, than ever, arguably, certainly in my lifetime, um, that I think brands have a wildly important role to play. 
um, both in the eradication of negatives and the creation of positives. You know, how can they help mitigate the systemic injustices? How can they help mitigate the environmental ones, the mitigate the, the moral, so-called moral ones? And how can they create moments of together, moments of optimism, moments for us to recognize what we do share, right? Because unless and until we do, yeah, it's pretty bleak. Yeah, no, but that, that was a great, uh, purposefully or inadvertently, that was a great rap. And I think it will, the leadership will come from other places because it's not coming from where it's supposed to come from. Nope. Well, but great. you know, on that, it's supposed to come from all of us. And so now it's coming from more of us. So I, I choose to see that as a good thing. All right, buddy. This was great. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.